Well, good morning, Sugar Creek family. What a joy to be here with you today. My name is Libby Abraham, and I want to welcome our Missouri City campus. You know, I've got a soft spot always in my heart for you because of our years together. Our Richmond Rose campus. I'm so excited about what's happening there, and all of you joining us wherever you are, whether from home, whether from all around the world. We're so grateful to you. Let's give it a hand for all those who are joining us today on multiple campuses. If you don't know me, uh, I've had the joy of being on staff here for nine amazing years. Uh, I got to be a part of ministry in many ways, and who I am today is an incredible direct impact of who you have been as a church family. You have shaped me in ministry, my family, and I got to tell you, we have the greatest lead pastor in the world, in Pastor Mark Hartman, and that is the truth. And. I got to tell you, in so many instances over the last year and a half or so, things that I learned from Pastor and the way that he's led me, shepherded me, mentored me, has just come to light in more ways than I could ever realize. And I'm grateful for the leadership here, for the for the heart of the Father here at this church. And Stacy and I are so grateful to be here today and this week. And uh, we're pastoring a church called Bentry Bible Fellowship in the North Dallas area, particularly the Kelton area. And I'm so grateful to be with us today, be with you today. Now, this is actually my fifth time this year to be back at Sugar Creek, and the last four times I've been to do funerals. So I'm just glad I could come back today to not do a funeral and just hang out and preach a message for you all today. I'm grateful for what God continues to do in and through the ministry of Sugar Creek, and my heart is always cheering you on, and we're always with you in spirit. How many of you you love routines and rhythms? Like you're a stickler to the calendar. Go ahead and show me your hands. Okay, you're like me. You live by a schedule. How many of you could care less about a schedule? You're go with the flow, life of the party. Yeah, there's several of you. I love you. I don't think I could live with you, but I'm grateful for you. Um, so in the last year and really four months since we've been away, uh, we've been staying with our parents, and that's been amazing because we love and like our parents, and we get along so well, and it's an amazing thing. In fact, my parents are here with me today, and I'm so grateful for them. They've taken us in and we've had an amazing time staying together because we're now just closing on a home in a week. And so we've been, it's a crazy time to move by the way and to buy or build a house. And we've been in the house building process and we're just getting ready to, to close here shortly. And we're thankful for that because I really miss having a closet to myself. Uh, my wife and I, we have different philosophies on how you arrange a closet and I'm excited about that because I gotta have my clothes in a certain order. Little OCD, like short sleeves here, long sleeves here, pants on this side. It's just the way it's got to be. And now I don't know if my clothes are in storage in a, which parent's house they're in. And it's, it's been one of those things, whether my in-law's house or my parent's house. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I came to my, uh, our media room where some of my clothes are and all the closet, the portable closet I had set up, it just collapsed. And I was so in despair. I couldn't even find myself to repair it. Uh, Stacey and I love each other with all our heart. I love her. She loves me. But let me tell you, sharing a sink has been sanctifying for both of us. And it's brought us closer to Jesus and brought us closer to one another. We love routines, and there's a part of us that when a rhythm is sort of missing, we feel it in some form or fashion. If our worship team, amazing as they are at Richmond Rosenberg or Missouri City, if they sang their hearts out for the next four months, they love Jesus, they sang their hearts out, but we're totally out of rhythm, you may be gracious for a few weeks, and then you'd be writing a few emails to Pastor Tony or one of our worship pastors at our campuses, because we notice it when things are not in a rhythm. Your body feels it when you have been eating right or exercising or getting enough rest, because even physically, there is a tempo to life. There's a rhythm for our health and our joy. 
Well, just like there are physical rhythms and musical rhythms, there is a spiritual rhythm to your life that you are meant to live life in. God's divine temple that gives you the greatest joy, the greatest fulfillment, the greatest meaning and purpose in your life. We're not saved by spiritual rhythms or as some call it spiritual disciplines. We are saved by the grace of God alone, amen? Amen. But spiritual rhythms can serve us. They are not our masters, but they can serve us in daily living our life with God, enjoying intimacy, his presence, his power. And through rhythms in our soul, God deeply transforms us as we live in the temple and the rhythms of God's amazing grace. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Let me tell you, the last few years have been crazy. The world has changed and transitioned. Our nation has changed. Your life, your world perhaps has changed. Maybe right now you find yourself in a different season of life, in a stage of life you never imagined, and some major life transition has happened to you. And it's very possible if you're like me in the midst of change and transition, when there's so much chaos around the world, the rhythms of our soul could be disrupted. And when they are, we are thrown off balance. In 1901, Dr. John Gertner in New York City, he coined the term neorchitis. Neorchitis. And here's how he described neorchitis. He felt like those in Manhattan were infected with this disease, and he began to write the symptoms of neorchitis. And listen to them. He said, neorchitis, here's what they are. Haste, rudeness, don't elbow nobody, restlessness, Arrogance, contemptuousness, excitability, anxiety, pursuit of novelty and of grandeur, and pretensions of omniscience. Well, I think New Yorkitis has come to Texas. <laughs> In fact, I think it's taken over the whole country, the whole world. Even Christians can be defined by some of these words, agitated, arrogant, seeking grandeur, easily irritated. Perhaps it's because in the busyness, in the daily life, something deep in us, the rhythm of our soul has been off-kiltered and it's been off-balance. Rich Villadas, a pastor in the Northeast, he wrote it like this in the book, The Deeply Formed Life. He said, our lives can easily take us to the brink of burnout. The pace we live at is often destructive. The lack of margin is debilitating. We are worn out, and all this, the problem before us is not just the frenetic pace we live at, but what gets pushed out from our lives as a result, namely, life with God. Life with God. This pace of life with no margin, no space, no room for other things, what gets pushed out is our daily walk, our daily life with God. Dallas Willard, who writes often on spiritual rhythms and disciplines, he said, hurry is a great enemy of the spiritual life of our day. Hurry is a great enemy of spiritual rhythms and spiritual life. Let me ask you, has hurry become the great enemy of your spiritual growth? The ways in which you connect and grow and deepen your relationship with Jesus. How is the rhythm of your soul If we were to connect a set of speakers to your soul, what would we hear? What would be the tempo, the pace, the rhythm of your soul? Uh, Are you living in step with the Spirit of God, full of the fruit of the Spirit? 
Or it's a life on your own strength, on your own terms, pursuing your own desires and passions. Are we living in the flesh or are we living the life of Jesus? Life of Christ in us, expressed through us, coming out of us, flowing through us. What is the rhythm, the tempo of our soul? One of the greatest invitations that Jesus ever made is at the end of Matthew 11, where Jesus speaks to a group of people who have been caught up in the rhythm of religion and law. They've been trying, they've been striving, but they're tired. They keep coming up short, and Jesus speaks to a group of people who are worn out on religion, and he says to them, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. So grateful Jesus didn't say, come and I'll give you more work. Come and I'll give you a condensed version of the Ten Commandments. No, 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 he says, come to me, I'll give you rest. For I am lowly and I'm gentle. Learn from my ways. Why? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yokes in those days were this wooden structure that would connect oxen together so they could plow the land. And usually a stronger, more experienced ox would be connected to a less experienced, younger ox or cattle. And they would be yoked together so that the younger, less experienced one could follow the temple, the rhythm, the patterns of the older, more strong ox. And Jesus is saying, lay down whatever yoke you have been under. Take up my yoke, learn my rhythm, the unforced rhythms of grace. I'll be gentle, I'll be lowly. You'll find rest with me, yoke up with me. He is inviting us to the rhythm of his own life, to a new, to a freeing, liberating rhythm of grace. What's amazing is that all throughout the gospels, Jesus invites us visibly into the rhythms of his grace into the kind of life he lived that we now live through the power of the Spirit at work in us. If you were to think about the life of Jesus, what words, I wonder, would you use to describe the life of Jesus? Go ahead and throw it out. Go ahead and yell it out at your campus, yell it out in this room. What words would you use to describe the life of Jesus? Let me hear a few. Perfect. A little bit louder, I know y'all can talk. Loving. Gracious, holy. I imagine in Missouri City, Richmond Roseburg, you've got some words coming to you as well. Powerful, magnificent, all the names of God that we think about and we sing about. But when Dallas Willard, when he was asked the question, what word would you describe to talk about the life of Jesus? He used this interesting word. He used the word relaxed. Never thought about it that way, relaxed. In my mind, Jesus had a lot to do. He had so much to get done in three and a half years of ministry that I would think that Jesus was this high driving, pushing people over, constantly irritable, so high strung that he wouldn't be relaxed. But the truth is that Jesus, yes, he had a lot to do, but he was never in a hurry. In fact, Jesus lived an unhurried life, an unhurried life. Let me prove it to you. Jesus waited 30 years to begin his public ministry. He could have started at the age of five. He was God at age five. He could have started at 18. He was God at age 18, but he waited 30 years living as a carpenter, being an obedient teenager to begin his ministry. 
And as soon as he began his ministry, what did Jesus do? He went to the wilderness for 40 days. Imagine you start a new job and your boss asks you, give me your 60-day plan. You're like, I'm going to go to the wilderness for 40 days. I'm going to be by myself. That wouldn't go over too well. But Jesus, as he began his public ministry, he gets away because he wasn't in a hurry. So often in the Gospels, Jesus is walking, walking by the Sea of Galilee, walking on the road. After he resurrects from the grave, on the day of his resurrection, he walks seven miles with two hurting people. Jesus had a walking ministry. He wasn't pacing, he wasn't running. He could have ridden a horse, but he didn't. He walked. This led an author to describe Jesus as a three miles an hour God. Three miles an hour, because typically, on average, people walk three miles an hour, on average. Three miles an hour, and here Jesus, he is not running, he's not 10 miles an hour, he's not speed walking, he's walking. Loving people, serving people, touching people, healing people, teaching, discipling, he is walking. Three miles an hour. This led N.T. Wright to say that we must slow down so that we can catch up to God. Slow down the pace of our life so that we can catch up to God. Jesus lived an unhurried life. Not only that, Jesus lived an interruptible life. This was the rhythm, this was the outcome, the tempo of his life. He was totally interruptible. There's a scene in Luke uh, where Jesus in Luke 8, he gets to Capernaum, and there he is. There's a huge crowd already waiting for him to hear him teach, and he gets interrupted by Jairus. And Jairus comes to him and says, you gotta come and heal my daughter. And in the last chapter in Luke 7, Jesus sent a word and healed the centurion's servant. And he could have done the same here, but he embraced the interruption. And he begins to walk with Jairus to his house. He leaves the crowd and goes with the one, this powerful synagogue leader named Jairus. He walks with Jairus because he embraced the interruption. And on the way to Jairus' house, he then again is interrupted, this time, by a bleeding woman, the woman with the issue of blood. She touched the hem of his garment and immediately she was healed, but Jesus decided to stop his journey. Who touched me, he called out. When she identified herself, she, Jesus has her speak, share her story, he affirms her faith, makes her whole. He embraced the interruption. In fact, the most powerful miracles of Jesus happened when he was interrupted. Here in that scene, he is going to a powerful man's house and he is interrupted by a woman who would be considered unclean. Jesus stops to see her. When his friend and cousin John the Baptist is beheaded, Jesus goes on a retreat just to be alone. He needed a day to grieve. When he gets there, there's a crowd waiting for him. His sabbatical is interrupted. And what does Jesus do? He heals their sick and he feeds them all dinner. A life that embraces interruptions. Jesus lived an unhurried, interruptible life and he lived a centered life. A centered life. Matthew 12, Jesus is in a crowd and there is a group of Pharisees in the crowd who are conspiring how to kill Jesus. So Jesus begins to withdraw as they're plotting to kill him. As he withdraws, a crowd forms around Jesus and he sees their need and he stops his leaving, he stops his withdrawing and he begins to heal the sick and teach. 
I'm thinking, if that's me, I'm telling the crowd to wait a little bit because there's a group that wants to kill me. But he stays because he was so centered. There he is at the Last Supper, knowing full well what Judas was going to do. The Bible says, knowing where he came from and where he was going, Jesus washed their feet, even Judas's feet. There he is hanging on a cross in the most excruciating pain that any human being has ever felt. And there he is praying for his executioner, forgiving those who are hanging him, caring for his mom, welcoming a thief to paradise. What a centered life. How is the rhythm of your soul in view of the rhythm of Jesus' life? I don't know about you, but I want to live this kind of life, an unhurried, centered, interruptible life that sees those around me with the eyes of Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus embodied certain rhythms that allowed him to live at this temple, and he invites us to do the same. The last few months I've been studying about the rhythms of Jesus, his personal rhythms and disciplines, and it's been fascinating to discover just a few of the rhythms of the life of Jesus. For instance, when Jesus was growing up, every year he would travel 80 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem just to be at the Passover festival. Can you imagine? Jesus, he longed to be with the gathered people of God that he would drive or walk 80 miles with his family to the Passover. And there he would see Joseph offer up their land that they brought as a family. And the priest would cut open the lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat. Jesus often is in and out of synagogues. He wanted to be with the gathered people of God. Jesus, the first thing he did when he started his ministry was get in a small group of 12 people. He wanted to walk with people, connect with people. He lived his life centered on serving others. There was this other fascinating rhythm that I thought was amazing. Now we know that Jesus is in the scriptures, meaning he is a hero of every story. He's on every page of the Bible. He is in the scriptures. But not only that, Jesus is totally immersed himself in the scriptures. Meaning he constantly spoke, he meditated, he quoted the scriptures. Not only is he in the scriptures, but he himself is immersed deeply in the words of scripture. Do you know that in the Old Testament, Jesus quoted, I'm sorry, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus quoted the Old Testament 78 times from 27 different Old Testament books. 78 times. And if you were to take all of the discourses of Jesus in the four Gospels, it would come up to 1,800 verses. And out of the 1,800 verses that record what Jesus said, 180 of them are direct quotes from the Old Testament or allusions to the Old Testament. Imagine that. A tenth of everything Jesus said and is recorded, direct quotes from Scripture, from the Old Testament. Jesus loved the word of God. He studied the scriptures. He spoke the scriptures. Not only was it in him, it flowed right out of him. When he is tempted, what comes out of him is scripture. When he is questioned, what comes out of him is scripture. When he is accused, what comes out of him is scripture. When he hangs on the cross, he is quoting the Psalms. Perhaps that's why he lived a centered life. Because he knew the scriptures. Jesus lived a life embedded, immersed in the word of God. 
how powerful that is for us to know that there's power when the written word of God becomes a spoken word of God, when it takes over us in such a way that no matter how you cut a person, no matter how you push a person, what comes out of them is the truth of the word of God. Power, strength, centeredness, when scripture takes deep hold of your life. There's this other rhythm that I want to kind of leave with us today, and it's the life of prayer that Jesus lived. Jesus didn't just have a prayer life, he had a whole life of prayer. All of the gospels bring to the forefront the prayer life, the prayer journey, the intimacy that Jesus experienced with the Father. Jesus is often found praying in solitude. This was a major part of his rhythm of life, praying in solitude. Let me ask you, why do you think Jesus prayed? Think about that, why would Jesus pray? Because if we were to be totally honest, you and I pray because we need something from God, don't we? Yeah. Uh, we pray because there's something we need, maybe there's a confusion we need clarity on, there's a decision we need guidance on, maybe we pray because we're confessing sins to God, asking for forgiveness. Maybe we pray because we wanna be closer to God, we feel this distance and in prayer, we're drawing close to God. Well, Jesus is God, he had no sins to confess, He had no need for clarity. He knew all things, and yet Jesus lived a life of prayer. Why? I think first and foremost, it's because Jesus simply enjoyed intimacy with the Father. Jesus prayed because he enjoyed, he cherished intimacy with the Father. The truth is that the world didn't understand who Jesus was. His own followers didn't quite understand who Jesus was, but with the Father, He was perfectly known. He was perfectly understood. There was a sense of intimacy he could get with the Father. He couldn't get anywhere else. In fact, Matthew 11, verse 27, reads like this. Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. What a statement of intimacy, this perfect bond. No one knows the Father except the Son and all those the Son reveals the Father too. And no one knows who the Son is, who he truly is, except the Father. Even before Jesus spoke, the Father knew him. The Son knew the Father with deep abiding intimacy that Jesus enjoyed with the Father. This is why we pray as well. The foundation of our prayer is not our petitions or our demands. The foundation of our prayer is friendship with God. It's enjoying, delighting intimacy with the Father. We don't pray because we have to. We don't pray to get our own way. We pray because we get to. We pray because Jesus died on a cross. He paid for our sins. He rose from the grave. He has ascended to the Father, and now he has opened the door wide for you and I to go directly into the throne room of God and to speak, not with fear, but with joy, with hope. He has granted us full freedom of delight and friendship with God. The foundation of why we pray is intimacy with the Father. We love being with God. There was a pastor who lived in the 19th century by the name of Pastor Joseph Scriven. He lived tragedy to tragedy. He was engaged to be married two times, and the first time, his fiance, the night before their wedding, she was on a horse crossing a bridge, and the horse sort of jolted and 
threw her off the horse. She fell into the river and she died. A few years later, he fell in love again and was getting ready to be married. At that time, his fiancée of that time caught pneumonia and she too died just before their wedding. Decades later, he writes to his mom who lives in Ireland and he now is in Chicago, in Canada rather. She's in Ireland, he's in Canada and she is really ill. So he begins to write a poem to comfort her. And you recognize this poem, it goes like this. What a friend we have in Jesus. All of our sins and grief to uh, to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Why, because we have not carried it to God in prayer. This poem was found when Pastor Joseph passed away. And the hymn that we sing is that poem. In tragedy, prayer was friendship with God. What a friend you have in God. I think the second reason Jesus prayed is because in his humanity, he was dependent on the Father and in the Spirit. In his humanity, Jesus fully God, but also fully human, meaning he was frustrated, he was discouraged, he was sorrowful, he grieved, even tempted to sin, fully human like us. And so he stayed dependent on the Spirit of God, on his Father in prayer. That's why before he began his ministry, he spent that time of 40 days in prayer. Before he chose his disciples all night long, he stayed up in prayer. Before going to the cross, he is in Gethsemane, surrendering his will to the Father. On the cross, he is praying. He was so dependent in prayer. And I got a feeling that the Son of God is so dependent. If the sinless, perfect, holy Son of God is dependent in prayer, how much more Are we drawn to our knees in desperation, not once a week, but every day, every hour, totally dependent on him in prayer? It's been said that the greatest form of practical atheism is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. We push prayer out of our heart, of our life. We're saying, God, we don't really need you. We got this on our own. We don't believe who you are. I've got this. Oh, may we be a people living in the rhythm of absolute dependence on the Spirit of God through the power of prayer. In Mark 1, Jesus is depleted after a long day of ministry in Capernaum. He has been driving out demonic spirits and healing the sick. He is tired. And notice how he chooses to refuel strength in his body. Mark 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Prayer and solitude. That's how Jesus chose to refuel strength. There he was found early in the morning praying. Before he chose his disciples, Luke 6, verse 12. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. Perhaps Jesus is asking the Father, are you sure these 12 are the ones? Are you sure, Father? He spent all night in prayer before choosing the 12. But Jesus didn't just pray in solitude when he needed something or when things were hard, when things were good, when miracles were happening and people were recognizing him. What did he do? He found himself in solitude, in prayer with the Father. Right after the feeding of the 5,000, 
What's he doing? He's praying. Notice what Mark 6, verse 45 to 47 says. Immediately, this is after the feeding of the multitudes, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Other gospel writers also record this, that as soon as he fed the 5,000, he got alone to pray, just to be with the Father in prayer. In fact, John, when he records the same event, what Jesus decided to do after he fed the 5,000, he gives us the motivation for why Jesus chose, after this amazing, momentous miracle, to be in solitude. John 6 Verse 15, after the same event, John says, therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, when he realized that they were about to come and make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus didn't only pray in solitude when he was grieving, when he was in pain, when he was hurting. No, no, when things were good, when he was being recognized and celebrated, even People making him a king, he decided to get away and pray in solitude. This is when he could have gone on a book tour, signing signatures and biographies, all of that. No, no, no. What he chose to do in the highest moments of his life was to get alone with the Father. May we do that as well. Even when people want to make you a king or a queen, our first go-to is to get alone to be with the Father in prayer. Luke gives us another rhythm of Jesus' prayer life, and Luke says this in Luke 5, verse 16. It's fascinating to me, and I think it's so applicable to all of us. Luke 5, verse 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away, circle the word slip away, to the wilderness and pray. He would slip away. So far, we've seen Jesus get up early in the morning to pray. He's staying late into the night to pray. But here, Luke says, during the day, Jesus would often slip away. He would withdraw, sort of in stealth mode. When people thought they were with Jesus, he would just get away to the side of a mountain where he was unseen and couldn't be disturbed, maybe. And he would just have these slip-away moments throughout the day to pray. Wow. What would that look like for us? If unplanned, unforeseen, we found a few moments here and there where we could slip away. Just pull away for just a few minutes, just like Jesus did. Maybe he slipped away for three minutes, five minutes, 30 minutes, I don't know how long, but if we just lived a life with the rhythm of slip away prayers, we're often trying to slip away from prayer, but what if we slipped away to prayer? You're stuck in traffic and rather than being so mad and upset that you're gonna be late, slip away. In prayer, you get to work early because traffic was light that day. You got a few extra minutes and you can either start work earlier, check on your emails quickly, or you can take that five extra minutes to slip away in prayer. Your doctor is late. <laughs> You've been there. What if you use those minutes to slip away? Maybe you are the doctor and your patient is five minutes late. You use those moments to slip away in prayer. Maybe you're a teacher. There's 10 minutes between classes. You can scroll through social media or you can slip away in prayer for the next class that comes. Maybe your kids are exhausted and they go to sleep early one night. How good is that day? 
You're gifted a few extra moments. Get alone in a corner and slip away in prayer. Pastor Rich Villadis, he said that when we slip away in prayer, we're escaping the reality of this world, not for the long term, but just for a few moments so that we can re-enter it through a different door. We're coming back into it through a different door. And here's what he said. For a disciple to leave the world is to enter back into it from another door. The door of God's love and acceptance. The door of God's way of being. See, something happens when you slip away in prayer. False identities are shed off of you. False sources of significance and worth are removed trying to please people and trying to keep up with the Joneses and trying to pursue frivolous things shed off of you and you slip away in prayer and you're reminded of who you are in Christ, of who God is through you, of how you were already loved, already accepted, already beloved, and you are strengthened by his love, by his spirit. And you are away intimacy, with intimacy with the Father, dependent on Him. And now even just in a few moments of this slip away moment, you can come back and re-enter through a different door. Being reminded of who you are, being strengthened by His Spirit at work. This week, would you find a little slip away moment to be in solitude with God in prayer? Maybe you're here today and you're saying, man, my life is heavy, it's weighty. Maybe what should have driven me to my knees keeps me from it because I'm so full of pain and despair and agony. How could I even pray? Let me read to you this verse in Hebrews about the life of Jesus in prayer that I pray will be an encouragement to you. Hebrews 5, verse 9, the writer of Hebrews says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries. You picture Jesus just weeping, fervent cries, sobbing, and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence and mission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus was found with fervent cries and tears. And if you're praying over your child, you're praying over your marriage, you're praying over somebody in your life, you're praying over an illness, Jesus empathizes with you. He's one with you in prayer. He often would offer up petitions full of tears. Maybe all you got are tears, all you got are cries. So was Jesus. He's like you when you're crying your eyes out over the things that are burdensome. So join Jesus in the rhythm of praying even like this. The great motivation to pray is intimacy with the Father, is dependence. But there's this one last thing. Do you know that even if you don't pray, even when you're not praying, even when you don't feel like praying, Jesus is still praying for you. Romans 8, 34 says, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. What's he doing? He also is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He intercedes for us. Right now, in this moment, what is Jesus doing? Praying for you, interceding for you. 
So here's the deal. When you pray, you're not starting from scratch. When you pray, you are simply joining Jesus in a conversation he is having with the Father about you. Don't our ears perk up when we hear somebody talking about us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, every single moment, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are talking, and the subject of their talking is you. He is interceding. He is pleading with the Father for you. So imagine every time you open your heart, your mouth to pray, you are just entering an ongoing conversation in the triune Godhead about you. That's strength when we pray, because that means even if you don't have words, we can just listen to how Jesus is praying for you. We can agree in the spirit with the prayers of Jesus for you. Church, I just wanna say, we gotta always be, and I'm thankful we already are here at Sugar Creek, a church who is not marching to the tune of popular opinion or culture, but marching to the rhythms of the life of Jesus. A church so embedded by a desire for the kingdom of God that the tempo of our soul isn't a rhythm we make up, it's the rhythm of the life of Christ in us and living through us. And I'll be the first to admit there are some days where my life is a little bit closer to the rhythms of Jesus and some days where my life is not so close to the rhythms of Jesus. But every day, it's a day of surrender. Say, God, I don't want my rhythms today. I want your rhythm of life. About a month ago, we are in the tail end of potty training our little boy, Liam, who is almost three. It's a long day, I'm depleted. Long day in the office at church. Of course, his rhythms are not per our rhythms and our routines. And if you know, you know, parents, potty training is hard. He had an accident. So guess what? I was not loving, I was not kind, I was too tough to him. I had a parent fail, a major parent fail. So much that I caught myself and had to apologize to my two-year-old. Well, the next morning, he had the same accident, but by then, I had prayed, I had my quiet time, I had been on the word, and the rhythm of my soul was different. My response was night and day. Same kid, same accident, but a different parent. Because there was a different rhythm in my soul. What does the rhythm of your soul look like, sound like? And how does it impact your relationships, your family, your marriage, your work? Today I'm inviting you anew to join Jesus, take on his yoke, to join him in the rhythms of his grace. Would you bow your head with me? Maybe you're here today and you've been living life for your own self, beating to the sound of your own drum. Jesus is inviting you. Will you lay down the rhythms of your life and pick up his yoke? Will you yoke up with Jesus? Will you let his life and his rhythms center you, cause you to be unhurried, cause you to even be interruptible? Let him fill you with joy, with purpose, with meaning in such a way that the greatest part of your day is intimacy with the Father, dependence on him, being immersed in his word, letting it be in you and letting it come out of you. When you're pushed and prodded, what comes out of you is the life of Jesus. Let's pray, Father, help us today to join the rhythm of your grace. And if there is someone under the sound of my voice on any of our campuses or at home joining us online, may today be the day that we recalibrate the rhythm of our soul to your rhythm.
your plan, your purpose, your divine temple for life. And if in the midst of the chaos and busyness of this world, we have neglected life with God, intimacy with the Father, today will you bring us back? Not to guilt or condemnation, but to the source of joy. Because you're never far. You're always praying for us. You're always with us. And you're inviting us today to come and find rest. Rest begins right now in this moment for some in this room and some online. Do it today, Jesus. Father, I thank you that you never turn away a prayer of repentance, a prayer of a person trusting by faith in Christ for their salvation. May today be the day of new beginnings, of rest once and for all that one person can find in Jesus as they place their faith in him. Sink our hearts to your heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.